Welcome to Political Roundtable, Election 2022. Rhode Islanders will decide a series of key political races when the current campaign season ends Tuesday. Will Alan Fung become the first Republican to win a U.S. House seat in Rhode Island in about 30 years? And will Democratic Governor Dan McKee win a full four-year term? And what does the relatively tepid turnout of midterm elections say about the health of our democracy? The end of the election next week is a prelude to the 2024 presidential contest. And this comes at a time of heightened political division in the United States. I'm Ian Donis. This week, I'm talking with two fellow political reporters about Rodan's most important campaigns. Jim Ludes from Salve Regina University in Newport joins me to discuss the problem of political violence in America. And we remember the late Robert Cool Moose Healy with Lawrence Veria, the author of a new biography about the cult political figure. The government that Bob Healy envisioned was one that would involve all of us at a level that would be unprecedented and, quite frankly, that uh, maybe we just weren't ready for. First up, our reporter panel on Rodan's top political races. We're putting the band back together. We've got Ted Nacy from WPRI-TV, Channel 12. Hi, Ted. Great to be back, Ian. And Patrick Anderson from the Providence Journal. Hey, Patrick. Hey, Ian. Great to be back. Let's start with the marquee race, the 2nd Congressional District mashup between Republican Alan Fung and Seth Magaziner. It seems like Fung had some strong advantages this year with the high rate of inflation causing concern for voters. Also, he seems somewhat inoculated from the image of Washington Republicans due to his persona in Rodan as a generally moderate, affable fellow. Ted, what is your perspective on what difference it'll make for Rodanders in terms of who wins this election? Well, I think uh, obviously having a Republican in the delegation for the first time since 2006 when Lincoln Chafee lost would be quite a change. I mean, I was just thinking about just the dynamics of the fact that, like, we get all the press releases jointly right now because it's four Democrats and they'd have to start to figure out, you know, will there be some more jockeying? Will everyone defer to Jack Reed if one of them's a Republican? But, you know, more to the point, the House is a very uh, leadership-oriented institution. And I don't care whether it's Seth Magaziner or Alan Fung. Um, You know, I think the question is whether if Fung wins, he's going to have some sort of ability to convince Republican leadership to, you know, fund projects that Jack Reed can't despite his position on the Appropriations Committee. And that remains to be seen. And then how Fung would navigate, um, you know, presumably a Republican majority if he wins in while representing a state that has not voted for a Republican presidential candidate now in, in decades. Patrick, you had a story this week about how the two candidates would approach the issue of inflation. How would you describe the key differences? Well, both of them are kind of deferring to um, very general terms and, and very broad strokes, which in a way they have to do because those big decisions will be determined by leadership for whichever one is is elected. Um, I think one interesting thing is if Fung does win, the size of the Republican majority, we're assuming that that would come with a Republican majority, is it big enough that gives him a lot of leeway to mm. take votes, uh, not with the party, on issues? Does he get a hall pass from presumably mm-hmm. Kevin McCarthy on a lot of votes that he knows might not be popular in Rhode Island um, to, to, get, to give him a better shot? of real, being reelected in two years? That's a really great question because sometimes we've seen how Republicans have gained the majority in the House and kind of overplayed their hand to the point where they've alienated voters. Do you, how likely is it that CD2 voters, if they do elect Fung, might have some buyer's remorse about the direction of the D.C. Republicans down the road? I think even if they didn't have buyer's remorse with him 
uh, personally, there would be a, a big chance that a Democrat would have a good shot in two years to take it back. And I think there will, it would be some great speculation uh, the morning after on who is lining up from mm-hmm. the Democratic bench to try to take that back, because it would be a presidential year, which would help uh, Democrats and uh, just just the swing back and forth uh, from party to party, I think, would make a big difference. Ted, speaking of 2024, there was one poll that showed President Biden's approval rating underwater in CD2 by 12 points. That's really striking in a blue-leaning state like Rhode Island. What does that suggest to you about 2024, particularly when with the Washington Post reporting this week that Biden is, appears to be gearing up for re-election? Yeah, look, I think um, often I'd say right before a midterm, you find a president at a low ebb. I mean, Barack Obama did not look like he was in good position to win re-election. At this point in 2010, he won uh, pretty convincingly. Uh, Donald Trump nearly won re-election, uh, despite having a, a pretty disastrous midterm in the House, at least in 2018. So, but look, I think if Jim Langevin had chosen a different year to retire, I have trouble imagining that the Democrats be having quite this much trouble holding on to the seat. They picked a year when the Democrats are in charge in Washington, when people are very frustrated, and they put up someone who didn't already have. Yes, he's been the magazine has been the treasurer, but that's not the kind of office we all know where you're well-known the way someone who ran for governor or is a mayor, which Fung has been, is. So, I mean, I talked to one person close to the Fung campaign who said he's never seen a congressional candidate start out with numbers as strong as Fung did in this district. It's just highly unusual for someone that well-known to be on the sidelines, ready to be brought into a race like this, like Fung was. Let's shift gears to talk about the race for governor. Ashley Kalis uh, moved to Rhode Island just last year, which is a bit of a disadvantage for someone asking for votes. There have been a series of news stories about various disputes she's been involved in. On the other hand, voters haven't entirely warmed up to Democratic Governor Dan McKee in the primary. Nearly seven of 10 voters voted for someone other than McKee. What is your analysis of this race, Patrick? Well, it seems like the McKee campaign has been trying to run out the clock for the last couple of weeks, keep him mostly to official events, not a lot of uh, appearances that are going to draw a lot of attention. And assuming that he has that advantage and that he's ahead in the polls and that he can just carry that through unless nothing bad happens. And then relying on all of the negative headlines and all of the stuff that's been drug, uh, dragged up about uh, Ashley Kalis's past to drive down her favorables and drive down her vote at the same time. And then you kind of see that, you know, why they might not be uh, excited about having McKee doing a lot of unscripted stuff with his last interview uh, on a Globe uh, podcast, which probably couldn't uh, have gone much worse. Um, I don't know that I've seen a sitting governor give an interview like that uh, in, in a campaign in, in forever. Um, it was quite bad. Well, Patrick, as uh, uh, Ted, as, as Patrick says, we've seen how Governor McKee has been quite thin-skinned at times. He says he's moving Rodan in the right direction. If he does pre- prevail over Ashley Kalis, what do you think a four years of a McKee administration would look like? Well, I think he made clear on the Globe podcast that just came out as we're taping this show, you know, he he sees he seems to see himself at war with the media, uh, sort of like Donald Trump. And so I assume that won't change uh, because he's not trying to change it when he needs to win re-election. Why would he change it if he has won re-election? 
Um, and more to the point, I think, you know, you talk to leaders in the General Assembly. They think Dan McKee uh, is always very open. You know, he said he didn't propose certain things because Shikarchi and Ruggiero made clear they didn't want it. And so I, I expect you'll uh, continue to see a relationship where he's more than happy to let them have a very powerful seat at the table over the next four years if he is the governor. Um, so, yeah, so I'd expect I'd expect more of what he's been doing. You know, that's kind of what he's been campaigning on. He thinks things are going well. He doesn't think there's a need for change. And we're going to find out if the voters agree. Patrick, usually midterm elections like the one wrapping up next week do not have super robust voter turnout. What does that tell us about the health of our democracy? Um, well, it, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It just tells you that, that some, some races are going to draw more attention than others. Um, and I think this one is, is from the early numbers actually looks like even the governor's race, which normally draws big turnout might not be getting that much attention. Um, it, it, it points to things being nationalized and, and people focusing a lot on presidential elections and national politics and not as much on local races uh, general assembly races or city council races. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's to be expected. Um, but I think we are seeing signs that the CD2 race is drawing uh, more attention than normal. Two of the top Republican candidates in Rodan, other than Ashley Kalis, are James Lathrop running for treasurer and Aaron Gukian running for lieutenant governor. Uh, Gukian seems to have come up with a fair bit of campaign cash. Lathrop, I think, is a little more challenged in getting his profile out. How do you look at these races, Ted? Well, you know, you have to start, um, and Republicans hate hearing this, but it's just the truth. Whether you're in Rhode Island or Massachusetts, you have to start defaulting that the Democrat starts with the advantage, especially in races that don't get attention the way a governor or congressional district races. I mean, it's been a lot of years since we've seen one of these down-ballot offices go to a Republican, even when they've been able to find some success in the governor's office. So, you know, certainly the Lathrop uh, campaign for lieutenant governor thinks, you know, Sabina Matos basically had no money coming out of the primary, and they think they maybe have been able to find some advantage over her. He's going on TV. Um, the Gukian, did I say Lathrop? I'm sorry. Uh, their campaign feels that way. But then Lathrop, you know, there's been a lot of hope for him, I feel like, among Republicans, but I haven't seen the fundraising come in to support him. And perennially, you hear from Republicans who understand politics who say, you know, we will get lots of people tweeting and Facebooking about our candidates, but if they won't write checks and help them have the money to campaign and get on TV and, and get their message out, they're not going to be able to overcome the sort of default Democratic groundswell. So you, you never want to rule anybody out. But um, I think they would acknowledge that when you're a Republican running in Rhode Island, it's, it's an uphill battle. Patrick, we saw in the primary efforts by the progressive Rhode Island political uh, cooperative to gain a lot of seats really did not go anywhere. There were some other uh, progressives aligned with different groups who did have success, but it was kind of an empire strikes back election. Uh, How do you see the stakes in the legislative races wrapping up next week? Well, I think big picture, and this often happens in a midterm, uh, when you have the party in power and things swing back towards the other side, uh, if things don't go well, the establishment is then going to kick back at uh, the insurgents or the activists in their base that have pushed them, in this case, to the left. I think you're going to see a lot of that if uh, in, in Rhode Island if the Democrats lose CD2. And if, if they lost the governor's office, I think it would be uh, intense mm-hmm. and, and pretty, uh, pretty amazing how much blowback there would be on the left, um, which did make inroads and really did push some things uh, to the progressive side in 2020. Ted, you've been keeping an eye on the Bristol County, Massachusetts sheriff race between the longtime incumbent 
uh, Tom Hodgson and his challenger, Paul Haru, the mayor of Attleboro. This has attracted a lot of out-of-town interest. How do you break down the outlook? Well, I got to say, I mean, obviously, Hodgson uh, has, it's very unusual, first of all, for a county sheriff's race in New England to be getting national money coming in, but that's what's happening here. And it's because Hodgson has been, uh, he, he aligned himself closely with Trump uh, during the Trump presidency. Now he's backing away, trying to run to the middle uh, for the election. And he's also taken this very old school approach to the treatment of prisoners. And they now have had the highest suicides uh, in the state of any county jail. And that's been a, a big talking point. But Hodgson is also, uh, he, he's a good campaigner. He's been on the scene for 25 years in Bristol County. Um, and Paul Harrow, he comes out of Attleboro. That's the fourth of the four cities in Bristol County, the smallest. So uh, while he has all this money with him, uh, I, I talked to a lot of people in Bristol County who are not counting Hodgson out. But one problem for Hodgson is the weakness of the Republican ticket in Massachusetts. Jeff Deal has barely run a campaign for governor against Maura Healy. And so if Paul Harrow were, were were to find a way to win that sheriff's race on Tuesday night, I would partly think it's because Hodgson's having to drive out the vote almost solely on his own because of the just incredible weakness of the Republican Party in mass. That's all the time we have, so we need to leave it there. Thanks for joining me from WPRI-TV Channel 12, Politics Economics Editor Ted Nisi. Good to be here, Ian. And the State House reporter for the Province Journal, Patrick Anderson. Thank you, Ian. The recent attack on Paul Pelosi, the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, underscores the growing problem of political violence in America. Joining me now to discuss that is Jim Ludes, Vice President for Strategic Initiatives at Salve Regina University. Ludes was previously head of the American Security Project, a think tank in Washington, and he served on former President Obama's transition team in 2008 and 2009. Jim Ludis, welcome to the Publix Radio. Thanks for having me, Ian. In the aftermath of this attack on Paul Pelosi, most experts seem to think we're in for a number of years of heightened political violence in the United States. Is that how you look at it? I think it is. And I think that we've seen this rhetoric growing for, frankly, decades. Uh, it begins with the notion that the uh, government is somehow out to get the American people. Uh, and we've seen it really grow and metastasize uh, in the last half dozen years, uh, particularly on the right, with the notion that there are some people in America who maybe are not as loyal as others, uh, who are somehow different or other, or who have nefarious intent about destroying America. Uh, and so we see it uh, manifest itself in rhetoric around things like uh, uh, the way President Trump has talked about uh, uh, the, the big steal, uh, the big lie in the election of 2020. Uh, we see it in the notion that uh, there are uh, a cabal of Americans in the QAnon conspiracy theory who are trafficking children, um, you know, and, and that they're principally uh, concentrated in the left in American politics. Um, these ideas uh, turn not just Americans against Americans, but it undermines our fundamental confidence uh, in the American system. Uh, and I think that it is, it, it's, a, it's a reason why so many experts are worried about the health of the republic and the danger for more political violence in the years ahead. How do we come back from this as a country? Well, I think the first thing is there are things that, that we need our leaders to do and there are things that we can do as citizens. Our leaders need to lower the temperature. Uh, we need to move beyond the notion that if somebody disagrees with us politically, uh, that they are somehow less American, less loyal, and less worthy of being heard. 
so that's that's step number one. And so our leaders can do a lot on that simply by changing the way they talk about issues. You can disagree with somebody on a fundamental policy issue. That doesn't make them less human or less worthy of being heard. As citizens, there's a lot that we can do uh, in terms of how we engage with one another uh, and with issues. Uh, you know, so I, I've spent a lot of the last, I spent most of my adult life thinking about disinformation as as a weapon in international relations. And what I tell audiences when I speak about this is stop retweeting, sharing, moving stuff on social media that we haven't considered, just because it makes you feel good doesn't mean that it's truthful, doesn't mean that it is right. And so we need to be uh, critical thinkers uh, and understand that we are, in this social media age, we are just as much purveyors of information as we are consumers of information. So before we retweet or like or share that, that meme that really gets our blood boiling, maybe stop and think about, well, wait a minute, is it even true? Uh, or am I just contributing to sort of these, these divisive forces in American politics? President Biden gave a speech this week in which he talked about democracy being on the ballot. Some Republicans felt like it was a, they said the president was sliming them. I think that was the phrase from one Republican. And certainly there is a political aspect to it because uh, democracy may well be on the ballot. But of course, President Biden wants the Democrats to do as well as they can in midterm elections. So to what extent does even the most routine standard politics get in the way of making progress on this issue? Yeah, I mean, that's how warped we are. I, I, I listened to the president's speech and I agreed with most of what he said. Uh, and yet I found myself wondering why this was a speech that he would make less than a week before Election Day. Uh, the, the timing, uh, I think, is political. Uh, doesn't mean he's wrong. Uh, but I think that if we're going to have a serious conversation uh, about uh, lowering the temperature in American politics, it needs to happen not just a week before election day. It needs to happen in the in the long uh, time between elections, where people are working together and really trying to solve problems rather than just scoring political points. When you look back in American history, I wonder if you see any analogous periods that are similar to what we're going through now, and and how were those resolved? Yeah. So I mean, there 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 are elements and there are phases. You think about divisive moments in recent American history, and you think about the civil rights era, uh, and you think about the McCarthyism of the 1950s, uh, where ultimately the, the, those were processes, you know, McCarthyism was ultimately uh, uh, burned itself out. Uh, and there's certainly some hope that, that some of this uh, threat of violence will, will, will burn itself out too. But what's different today is social media and the ability of groups uh, to not just sort of find themselves, but for individuals to be motivated and to think that they have to take actions themselves independent of a group. I think experts call this ungrouping of extremism. So if you think about the atomic pizza uh, uh, incident in 2017, when uh, an armed gunman stormed a pizza parlor in Washington, D.C., because he had convinced himself, based on something that he had read online, that uh, Democrats were holding children as sex slaves in the basement of this pizza parlor in Northwest D.C., uh, and he showed up with an AK-47 to liberate the children. There were no children there, right? But these individuals 
hyper uh, motivated and and enabled by and frankly encouraged by what they're reading online and in social media take measures into their own hands. It seems that perhaps the the, the man who uh, went into the um, the home of, of Speaker Pelosi and assaulted her husband was similarly motivated and radicalized uh, it, through sort of online engagements and, 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 and that, that sort of really amped up his belief that he needed to personally do something uh, to stop this, this cabal that was trying to hurt America. There's a lot of contentious stuff in the country right now, as we've discussed. What gives you hope right now? I think what gives me hope is that there is an enormous amount of uh, good work being done by people uh, trying to find ways to to remember and to remind Americans that we're all in this together, that the the, the American experiment with self-government is not a foreordained conclusion. This is something we have to work out all the time. It's a project that we're working on at the Pell Center every day, uh, and it's something that it's that work, that labor that gives me hope. Jim Ludas, Vice President for Strategic Initiatives at South A. Regina University. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ian. Robert Healy of Warren was known as the spiritual leader of Rodin's Cool Moose Party, which began in the 1980s as a way to involve more people in politics. Healy was a familiar figure with his long hair and bushy beard, but he was also a factor in local politics. In 2014, Healy got more than 20% of the vote in the race for governor while barely spending any money. Healy died in 2016. Now, a new biography, The Cool Moose, Robert J. Healy Jr., Beyond the Beard, looks at Healy's life and influence. I'm joined by the book's author, Lawrence Varia, chair of the social studies department at North Kingstown High School. Lawrence Varia, welcome to The Public's Radio. Well, thank you for having me. Why did you write this book? You know, when you think about Bob Healy, he uh, he commanded attention for over 30 years in the political spectrum. And when he passed away, his entire legacy, it seemed to me, was processed in approximately 24 hours. And as time went on, all we ever heard about was his his will or his, his treatment of that will. Um, and it just seemed to me that uh, there was something missing. So I, I've sensed a void, and I thought uh, maybe I could contribute something to a discussion that I thought needed to be had, and that was... What did this man mean to the political scene and all of us over that 30-plus year period? And how would you describe what he did mean to that political scene over those decades? I think a lot of that was missed on us. And, and what I mean by that is I think there was a lot to take away from Bob Healy. I'm not sure that we ever did come to terms what he meant to us or could have meant to us. And I'm not speaking just to the fact that he never was elected to the lieutenant governor's office, which he obviously sought three times, or the governor's office, which he sought on four occasions and lost, sometimes by very, very wide, uh, tremendous uh, percentage points. I think he had a different message for us that was lost on us because we weren't prepared for it. We weren't ready for it. And that was the conclusion that I came to after my writing. Um, and it was during the writing, not during the research. During the research, I was trying to figure it out just like anyone else might try to figure out what his legacy would be or what he meant to us. But as I went back and I started writing, especially as I went through his childhood, I started to see threads that ran through his life and then revisited his messages. And it became quite clear to me that the government that Bob Healy envisioned was one that would involve all of us at a level that would be unprecedented, and quite frankly, that uh, maybe we just weren't ready for. I had the opportunity to get to know Bob Healy as a candidate, and he was a very memorable figure. 
Charlie Bax, the former Providence, Providence Journal columnist, once famously said he was a haircut and a shave away from the governor's office. Be all this as it may, I wonder how you think Healy would look at the argument that we still playing out now about independent candidates who don't play by the typical rules of Rhode Island politics. Sometimes they're excluded from debates because they don't reach a certain threshold of polling support or campaign fundraising. Other people say that if they're on the ballot, they should have the same opportunity as better funded, better known candidates to be in debates. How do you how do you look at that and how do you think Healy would look at that? Well, I think, first of all, I would agree with Bob Healy's uh, treatment of that. He was very outspoken about that. He felt that it was a mistreatment and a misjustice to to democracy. Uh, How can you learn about a candidate if you never get an opportunity to size him or her up against their competition? And that was something Bob Healy had uh, had to fight throughout his entire political career. Once even being disinvited, to a um, to a debate because they decided that after all he really wasn't uh, competitive enough to be in that um, in that realm. As far as Bob Healy's appearance, which we had alluded to in terms of Charles Basque's comment from years ago, which is actually I mentioned that in the book, I sometimes think that's overplayed a little bit. Uh, you know, we became very used to Bob Healy. Maybe for the first couple of campaigns, it was a novelty that was worth maybe us being taken back by because we weren't used to it. But after 30 years, we know what Bob Healy looked like. And fact, I think it was more of an asset than a detriment to his campaigns, because unlike other campaigns where you, didn't, you can't recognize a candidate from one year to the next or four years, all you have to say is, you know, the guy with the beard and the mustache. Instantaneously, people knew who he was. You can't pay for that kind of uh, attention. So I thought it was a great draw for Bob Healy. On top of that, Bob Healy himself saw it as an asset because he said it, it People assumed certain things because of my appearance, and then that gave me the opportunity to talk to them, and they realized right there and then that there was a, a tremendous difference from what they had prejudged prior to, to actually have, giving him a chance to talk, and that often uh, brought converts to his cause. I think one aspect of Bob Healy's legacy is he showed that politics can be fun even while being about serious things. What are some other uh, discoveries that you found uh, that reflect on his legacy? Well, Bob, Bob Healy's funny, uh, plain and simple, but that was, uh, you know, he was funny because he made himself funny. As one of my sources said, uh, all of that was by plan. Bob Healy would, would set out to do things for purpose, where I think a lot of people thought it was just random or just who he was, which is partly true that it was uh, who he was. He, he loved a good joke. That being said, um, there was a real functionality to all of this, and that was to draw attention to his campaigns so that he could then deliver a more serious message. Again, I think the message might at times have been lost on us, but I think the message was heard. Lawrence Ferrier, thank you for joining us. I appreciate being here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to our show this week. If you have a question or comment, drop us an email at news at or connect with me on Twitter at Ian Don. This has been a production of The Publix Radio. Our producer is James Baumgartner. Our editor and executive producer is Sally Isley. And our CEO and general manager is Tori Malatia. Keep it tuned to The Publix Radio for our detailed coverage of the election next week. I'm Ian Donis, and I'll see you on the radio.